Feast of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones, and it is great to be here. Uh, a while back, I said that I would do these podcasts whenever I feel like it. it uh, prior to that, I was doing it weekly, and uh, so that's why I have not had one in a while. Um, I, I'm just going to throw one out there every now and then, whenever I feel like it. <laughs> so uh, uh, you can, however, go over to my blog, Jonathan Jones Musings at blogspot.com. There's also a link to it on my website, jonathanjones.tv. And uh, I do uh, post some things on there, uh, normally some short little devotions and stuff like that if you want to read some material there. But uh, the Act of Worship podcast uh, will continue uh, just, just on a, at a different uh, interval of time. Uh, periodically. So uh, so here we are, back at it, the Act of Worship podcast, and uh, today I'm going to be talking about a topic uh, that I have discussed on many occasions on this podcast and uh, that, that is very important to me, and I think it, it, it in many ways has been life-changing to me uh, unexpectedly. The topic I'm going to be talking about is covenant, and um, I, I like I said, I've discussed this several times because... Um, uh, through my academic studies, um, covenant was very prevalent in what I did and unexpectedly brought me to a point of life change just in the process of that study. And so um, I've written two doctoral dissertations, and both of them significantly discussed covenant. And so it is foundational to the Christian faith. And that is, in, in fact, what I am going to talk about today. And I'm going to give you a broad overview of covenant doctrine and theology. Most people, I think, when they discuss covenant, discuss it in a very broad and general terms without having any clue what they're talking about. Um, but scripture and human history really are replete with derivatives of covenant and especially God's covenant with his people. And so the old covenant and the new covenant are commonly considered in covenant theology. You hear people talking about that quite a bit, but framed within the bounds of the old covenant are also individual covenants. For example, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, there are several others. Um, and you, you ask theologians and they might have different ideas of which covenants exist. Uh, there are different numbers. Um, but there are several of those individual covenants, and I believe they are framed, including the new covenant in Christ, within the bounds of the covenant of grace. And so the aim of what I'm going to do here is I, I want to secure a theology of covenant in an overarching manner. So preceding the covenant of grace, that is normally what people think about when they think about covenant. They, they may not realize this, but when people think about covenant— they're normally thinking about the covenant between God and his people. Um, and on that, uh, the covenant of grace is not an individualistic covenant. In other words, it is not a covenant primarily between God and individuals, but between God and a body of people. Um, so, preceding the covenant of grace... Uh, and, and that upon which it is founded really is the covenant of redemption. 
And I'm going to get into that. Now, again, most people don't even think about this. When they think about covenant, they have no clue what this is. The covenant of redemption, it's between the three members of the Godhead. And then stemming then from, from the covenant of redemption is the covenant of grace, which encompasses both God's sovereign plan and the responsibility of humankind. And so it's upon this covenant, the covenant of grace, that the entirety of God's workings rest. And so the foundation of God's work throughout human history is his covenant with his people. And so realizing that the uh, the foundational doctrine of covenant, I think, is vital to the Christian faith and life in Christ because covenant is the foundation of the Christian faith. So let's get into it. I've got kind of three sections I want to talk about. The first thing I want to talk about is the covenant of redemption, because that is the foundation of the covenant of grace. I have discussed in detail the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption in the past, and I'm going to give you a, bro a broad overview here. Uh, in, the Exodus, in the Exodus narrative, God acts, in other words, he redeems his people, not primarily based on their prayers, but on the covenant he made with them. In Exodus 2, 23 through 25, you, you see that uh, God hears the cries of his people, and it says he remembered his covenant Okay, so the foundation of what he did after that, redeeming his people, the, the Israelites from Egypt, was his covenant, not the prayers. Yes, he heard their prayers, but it says he remembered his covenant. And, uh, and then he acted. So while various covenants exist throughout the Old Testament, uh, John Calvin says this. He says, after the fall, there is only one covenant, the covenant of grace. This, however, presents itself in the progressive unfolding of the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant, but they are a progressive revelation of what Yahweh intended with the patriarchs, end quote. That's what John Calvin says. So God's covenant with his people, in other words, the covenant of, his, of grace, it might be viewed as manifested through the various individual Old Testament covenants and then finalized and made permanent through the new covenant in Christ. But there's a reformed formulation of not only the covenant of grace, but the covenant of redemption, or what's called in Latin the pactus, uh, pactum salitus. And uh, this covenant of redemption provides the foundation upon which God's covenant of grace rests and so the view that in that in eternity past the three members of the godhead made a pact with one another as to how the redeemed people would be saved was formulated during the era of puritan john owen uh, but it also holds biblical support primarily in the book of john based on christ's common mention of the work which the father sent him to do and so the pact between the three members of the godhead or the covenant of redemption is foundational to God's work in his covenant of grace with his people. So the covenant commonly considered by most believers is the overarching covenant of grace, whether they realize it or not, that's usually what they're discussing. But when we get into details, there's the covenant of redemption, and then derived from that is the covenant of grace. 
And um, in, in the covenant of grace, there, uh, stemming from that, there are a plurality of manifestations sub, uh, that, that exist in the biblical narrative. The covenant of redemption, uh, often referred to, as I said earlier, the pactus solitus, differs in that it is the pact made in eternity past between all three members of the Godhead re- regarding how the chosen people or the church would be redeemed. And so the uh, covenant of redemption precedes the covenant of grace. And it's in fact the basis for the covenant of grace. The basis for the covenant of redemption, however, is the three-way love relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit. John Owen often speaks of the Father as the fountainhead of the Trinity. And so the Father's distinct work um, is never separate from other members of the Trinity. Um, but his work is as the master designer of creation and salvation. And so in the covenant of redemption, out of love for the Father, or love for the Son, the Father bequeaths or gives a people. Out of love for the Father, the Son redeems the people. And out of love for both the Father and the Son, the Spirit calls, convicts, and guides the people. And so all actions are born of and based upon love between members of the triune Godhead for each other. And so someone might question the biblical basis for this covenant of redemption. Uh, Theologian uh, Parr, uh, Thomas Parr, theologian Thomas Parr says this about the... uh, Uh, The Covenant of Redemption. He says, During the post-Reformation era, English Puritan theologians developed an exegetical theology of the Covenant of Redemption, in part because earlier writers were generally silent about this mysterious transaction. But scriptures are very pregnant and evident. But by right admission, uh, that's the the end quote, uh, but by right admission, there doesn't exist... I think explicit references to the covenant of redemption, but it is a central part of reformed theology. Um, The covenant of redemption is not a biblical designation. Um, The teaching that from before the creation of the world, the persons of the Trinity entered into a solemn pact to accomplish the work of redemption. Uh, The father promising to give a people to the son and his inheritance, the son undertaking this uh, to accomplish their redemption and the spirit Uh, covenanting to testify to Christ and apply his redemption to their hearts is mostly um, evident in the Bible. So according to the divine testimony, the lamb was already considered slain from before the foundation of the world in Revelation 13, 8. So certainly uh, the agreement to accomplish redemption was established before history. So before time began, this agreement was set into place. And there also exists biblical support for the covenant of redemption by way of inference. Uh, Psalm 2, for example, depicts Christ relating the terms of the covenant that the Father had established with him. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 also speaks of the covenantal agreement between the Father and the Son in accomplishing um, the work of redemption. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 gives a Trinitarian picture of the roles that each person of the Godhead undertook from eternity to perform. 
Many, however, take the Gospel of John as the clearest portrait which points to the covenant of redemption as Jesus repeatedly speaks of the work given to him by the Father. And I could give you countless references to that. But the remainder of my time here, I want to focus on the covenant of grace now that you know about the foundational covenant of redemption. And so to understand Uh, covenant believers need to understand that all of God's workings rest upon the foundation of his own glory and the threefold love relationship between father, son, and Holy spirit. But the covenant of grace or the pact between God and his people, therefore is founded primarily upon the preceding covenant of the Godhead in eternity past. So we should not ever supersede the glory of God by elevating our own importance but God's love for us is derived for his love, uh, from his love for himself. In other words, the manner which God glorifies himself is by loving the bride of Christ beyond measure. So covenant is the foundation of God's work and the covenant of redemption, the foundation of the covenant of grace. So let's get into the next two parts of this that I want to talk about. And that is both God's sovereignty and humankind's responsibility. So God's sovereignty, the unconditional promise of God's covenant. Um, God's covenant with his people really is referenced in Romans 9, 14 through 16, which makes it clear the fact that God's covenant is unconditional. In other words, no matter what his people have or have not done, he is merciful toward them. And so understanding the text of what Paul is saying in Romans 9 ameliorates the understanding one has of God's unconditional promise in the bounds of his covenant. And so the Apostle Paul seems to emphasize the sovereignty of God in his letter to the Romans. He says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So God's sovereignty in his covenant is made clear. It might be easy to consider the various manifestations of God's covenant throughout Scripture as separate and individual covenants. Each covenant, though, is truly a manifestation of God's overarching covenant of grace, which was finalized and made permanent in the new covenant. But the essential nature of the new covenant is nowhere more clearly articulated than in Jeremiah 31 31 through 34. In fact, it is the only Old Testament text to utilize the term new covenant. The writer uh, to the Hebrews, quoting this verse at length, teaches that this covenant has been inaugurated in the blood of Christ, finding fulfillment in the church. So in, in this way, each individual biblical covenant, the, the ones I mentioned earlier, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, uh, these should be considered as parts of a whole. Uh, Just as circumcision was the physical sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, the argument could be made that baptism has become the sign of grace in the New Covenant. But the New Covenant is better. It's better than the Old Covenant. Baptism is a better sign since it does not depend on either gender or genealogy. In other words, no longer must God's people come from a particular heritage and no longer is the sign reserved for only males. God's people are cleansed in Jesus Christ and signify their spiritual death in the ordinance of baptism. And so in both the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, God acts sovereignly. In other words, he employs his grace according to what will glorify him. Paul's uh, words in Romans 9, uh, 9, 14-16, emphasize that God's role in his covenant with his people 
is not related to external factors. And so this understanding, it shouldn't give us a, a false understanding that humankind holds no responsibility because covenant implies a pact between two parties. But God's saving works exist for his own glory. His covenant with his people is unconditional. In other, in other words, not based on anything they have or have not done. God's unconditional promises precede the parts of the covenant which are conditional and are indeed the foundation upon which his love for his people rests. So we should not assume that we're saved because of anything we do. We need to eternally realize that God is sovereign and that his covenant initiates the pact between himself and his people. So let's get into humankind's responsibility. Since the covenant... Since covenant lies as the foundation of God's work throughout human history, a properly rounded view of the topic needs to be understood by every Christian. So Joshua 24, 14 through 28 provides an account of God's people given a choice to follow him or not, which is to suggest that although God is sovereign in his unconditional covenant, humankind still has the responsibility to respond. In other words, the conditional promises of God's covenant. So understanding that that in this passage, Joshua yields the necessary understanding of the paradox that, that God's covenant is both unconditional and conditional. God is sovereign and humankind is simultaneously responsible. Christian theologians really have long emphasized two main covenants in, at the work in the Bible. Uh, so number one, the covenant of works whereby the chosen people of Israel through obedience to God's law are promised eternal salvation and blessing. And number two, the covenant of grace whereby the elect through faith in Christ's incarnation and atonement are promised eternal salvation and beatitude. So while God's covenant with his people um, holds the aspect of sovereign choice, God's sovereign joys, Christians are also given a responsibility in this covenant. Aaron Clay Denlinger offers the following explanation in reconciling the unconditional and conditional aspects of God's covenant. He says this, the covenant of God in general is a promise of grace under some settled condition. The legal covenant is the promise of eternal life under the condition of our own lawful works. The gratuitous covenant is the promise of both justice, which was lost through the fall, and eternal life under the condition of satisfaction for an offense committed, not a satisfaction of our own, but that rendered by Christ the mediator, which must nevertheless be apprehended by our faith. End quote. Christ's mediating sacrifice, then, according to this, is not only the ultimate display of love, but the final work in fulfilling the promise of covenant. God's people are incapable of obedience to the law. Paul makes that clear. And so, in discussing a historical understanding of covenant, Howard Marshall observes that Christians' thinking and distinguishing between the old and new covenants is both instructive and ironic. It's ironic in that it merely serves as a footnote in early Christianity and instructive in that it clearly articulates the meaning Jesus gave to his own death. But modern believers have the luxury of a complete understanding of God's covenant because the topic has morphed to become not just a footnote 
but a foundation of Christian theology and God's work throughout human history. And stalwartly linked to that understanding is the understanding that God's people hold responsibility, which is compatible with God's sovereign work in covenant. So Paul discusses the law as a curse, but although God's people are not capable of keeping his law, Christ has redeemed his bride from the curse by becoming a curse on their behalf, according to Galatians 3.13. Paul rejects the works of the law because his anthropological conviction that humans are unable to fulfill the law. So the responsibility of, of Christians then is not to be saved by works of the law, but to reflect the already achieved redemption of Christ in the covenant of grace. The church is to live in light of who she is, a redeemed people. So while Joshua 24, 14 through 18 provides an account of old covenant people being given a choice to follow or reject the ways of the Lord, those redeemed in the new covenant hold the same responsibility, but as a reflection of God's character rather than an obligation for salvation. God is certainly sovereign in his work, but God's people also have responsibility, and the two ideas are mysteriously compatible. Covenant implies a pact between two parties. In the, in the covenant of grace, God initiates a relationship with his people and his people respond to him in faith, both actions providing the foundation of Christian faith. So covenant is foundational to the Christian faith in that upon the covenant of redemption rests the covenant of grace and upon the covenant of grace rests the entire Christian faith and God's work in the lives of his people. The foundation of God's work throughout human history is his covenant with his people. So God's sovereign initiation of covenant is still compatible with the responsibility of his people in the covenant of grace. Additionally, the foundational covenant between God and his people is supported by and derived from the pact made in eternity past between the three members of the Godhead. So the vitality of covenant should not be diminished in the Christian faith. Covenant is the basis of of God's work throughout human history. So I hope that covenant has become more foundational to you. It certainly has for me just in my study of it, in my writing about it. It has changed my life. And um, I think a proper understanding of covenant will yield that same result for anyone. We need to understand the covenant that God has made with his people. Because we are a part of that story and a part of God's history. So uh, thank you for listening to the Act of Worship podcast today. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Did it.